0: Good morning, it's 8.30 on Wednesday, August 8th. I'm Ezra Wall. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's program, find out why some Mississippi women say a state law is needed to address the gender wage gap.
1: In Mississippi, where a man may retire at the age of 60, for a black woman, she will have to retire at the age of 91, 30 years later, in order to close that gap.
0: Then we'll hear from the state literacy director on changing requirements for third grade tests. And after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, a a credit union in Mississippi is offering hope to those who may be left out when it comes to traditional banking. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Women in Mississippi are paid significantly less than their male counterparts, according to a report by the National Women's Law Center. They say black women are the most affected. Advocates say the average working black female has to work until August 7th of the next year in order to match the amount a working white male made in a 12-month period. Several organizations gathered to mark the National Black Women's Equal Pay Day yesterday and to announce a forthcoming joint report. A roadmap to winning economic security for Mississippi women and families is set to outline economic issues facing women. Cassandra Welchlin is co-founder of the Women's Economic Security Initiative. She tells MPB's Ashley Norwood the coalition is pushing for policy change to help close the gap
1: a black woman has to work um, nine months more than um, her male counterpart in order to make up those wages. And so August um, 7th marks that day nationally. And and what that means um, for a black woman is that that wage gap for her is significant. And so in the state of Mississippi, our um, organization have, with our coalition partners, we've been pushing for equal pay in the state of Mississippi. And so we're joining the national movement um, to really try to close this gender wage gap um, in the state. And so for us, we've been um, pushing legislation um, for the last three years to try um, to really get some legislation on the books because Mississippi and Alabama are the only two states that don't have um, any kind of legislation. Um, and so what that means is that we got women's wages who are that's not protected. And so today we're gonna we're here to just lift that up um, and to continue to push for this initiative to try to get a law on the book.
2: So compared to other states, is it worse for a black woman here?
1: Yeah. Um, in the state of Mississippi, we have one of the um, worst wage gaps um, in the country, which is really significant. So a black woman is paid um, in Mississippi uh, $0.56 cents for every dollar paid to a white man, non-Hispanic. And so what that means is that she's losing about $20,000, $20,700 year-round um, over the course of a 40-year... well. Each year, and so over a course of a 40 year um, period of her career, that's over $800,000.
2: I want to ask you how are you comparing the, the subjects in, this, in the report, the man and the woman? Are these people with the same amount of work, the same level of education? How are you comparing them?
1: So, what it is, uh, women are, uh, these are women who are in the workforce, um, who are working year round. Um, and we're looking at women who are in various occupations. We're also looking at women who have various um, education levels. And when we compare all of that, it doesn't matter what her education level is. Um, It doesn't matter um, what that, um, job, um, that job is, that wage gap still exists. In the healthcare field, it's a little closer, um, but a woman who's in that healthcare field, such as a nurse, um, she is still making less than a man is making. And so, you know, and w- given Mississippi's poverty, you know, rate, um, and Not only just the poverty rate, we know that Mississippi women, you know, make up half of the workforce here, right, in the state of Mississippi. And for black women, um, not only are we making up the workforce, but we also um, are head of our households, you know, a lot of black women are head of their households in the state of Mississippi, and so we have a long ways to go to be able to close that gap. In our report, it notes that in Mississippi, uh, where a, a man may retire, a white man may retire at the age of 60, for a black woman, she will have to retire at the age of 91, 30 years later um, in order to close that gap. So we have a long ways to go, and so we proposed some legislation over the last couple of years, and so we're going back to our um, leaders to say we really need to be able to provide some solutions to close this wage gap.
0: That's Women Economic Security Initiative co-founder Cassandra Welchlin. Andrea Johnson is senior counsel for state policy at the National Women's Law Center. She tells MPB's Ashley Norwood Mississippi needs a law with strong protections.
3: We are really proud to partner with Cassandra of the Mississippi Women's Economic Security Initiative and the Black Women's Roundtable and also the Mississippi Low Income Child Care Initiative and Oxfam. We're all working together to really close the wage gap in Mississippi, Mississippi has one of the worst wage gaps. It's even worse for women of color, and so we're working on passing a strong equal pay law, but also other workplace supports that women really need to close the wage gap.
2: So when we talk about law, what's important to be added in the law to make sure that there are no loopholes or no way around um, trying to see the change that these women want to see?
3: Yeah, so right now, Mississippi doesn't even have an equal pay law on the books. It's one of two states that doesn't have an equal pay law, the other one being Alabama. And this is a major hole being part of the reason that the wage gap is so significant here in the state. So, first of all, you need to get a wage, uh, an equal pay law on the books, but it needs to be stronger than what we already have in federal law. There's no real point in passing a law if it's just to duplicate the federal law. It needs to close some of the loopholes that we see in the federal law that have made it easy for employers to get away with paying women less for no real you know, justification. Um, It also needs to have uh, strong protections for pay transparency. By that, I mean making sure that employees who discuss their wages are not retaliated against for talking about what they're being paid, because if they don't have that protection to talk, you know, did you get a raise, you know, did you get a bonus, those water cooler conversations, um, if they don't have those protections, it's going to be really hard to ever find out that you're being discriminated against, and it doesn't incentivize employers to make sure that they're paying people fairly from the beginning.
2: So, for women who I guess right now, where we are, like you said, we don 't have a law, we have the federal law, but as you stated, there may be some loopholes that have allowed um, women to not get that equal or fair pay. So, for women right now what 's your best suggestion for them if they find out that or they feel that they have been um, that they are being paid less than what they 're worth, what should they do?
3: Yeah, this is always a difficult question to answer in part because there is a real feel of fear of retaliation that if a woman discovers which most times she doesn't discover because pay is kept so secret but if she discovers that she's being paid less than her male counterpart um there's a fear that if you speak up you might be fired or demoted uh and so that's always something we tell folks uh that you know it's great if, if you can go to your employer and raise this and talk with them, and hopefully they'll rectify the problem. Um, but retaliation is a thing that happens. It's illegal, um, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen and that you're not going to be without income potentially if, if you're fired. So, um, But, yeah, it's important to document as much, much as you can uh, what's going on with the pay and and the analysis that courts do is looking at what your job is versus the, the male counterpart who's making more than you and, and whether it's you know, a similar job, and that's important to look at. Um, and if there are any justifications for those pay differences, like seniority or something like that, a court will look at that. So those are the analyses, and it, it can be a complicated analysis. So part of the work we're doing um, in strengthening equal pay laws is to make it less complicated so that people can get the pay that they deserve.
2: I'm glad you mentioned that um, because a lot of people may say, you know, well, if, if someone isn't doing the same work or if they don't have the same years of experience or level of education, then they shouldn't get paid the same. But I guess, is there a gray area or is that pretty black and white generally how it should go?
3: Yeah, so, I mean, the law requires equal pay for equal work, which means, you know, generally subst- substantially equal work, so not identical, but, you know, roughly the same work. Um And so if you're doing the same job, you should be paid the same as your your male counterpart. There are justifications for differences, like seniority, like you've been on the job so many more years, merit system. so if there's a whole uh, performance evaluation process, you know, standardized, that um, allows for differences in pay, uh, that's relevant, Um, and, and a few other types of defenses that are relevant, so... Um, it's not like everybody has to be paid exactly the same. Um, the law does recognize that there are mechanisms in place that create disparities that are justified. But if it's based on sex, if it's based on the fact that you're a woman uh, you know, or you're being overlooked because you're a woman with caregiving responsibilities and you're not being given that promotion, like, that becomes very problematic.
2: Andrea Johnson is with the National Women's Law Center. Andrea, thank you again so much for your time on this. Yeah, thank you.
0: And the coalition says they'll begin a push for a new law during the 2019 Mississippi legislative session. Coming up, we'll hear from the state's literacy director on changing requirements for the third grade test. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
1: Technology is everywhere. It affects how we live, work, play, and most importantly, learn. Join us on the next Everyday Tech as we discuss technology in the classroom. Gone are the days of the blackboard and those large overhead projectors. Now it's touchscreens and YouTube classrooms. Plus, we're taking your personal tech questions. So join us today at 10 as we go back to the future in the classroom on the next Everyday Tech only on MPB Think Radio.
0: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Ezra Wall. Mississippi third graders now have to score higher on a state-mandated reading test to advance to the fourth grade. The new policy begins this school year for Mississippi children taking the third grade reading test. Students now have to score at level three to achieve a passing score and be promoted to the fourth grade. Up to now, students could score at level two to be promoted. Kimiana Burke is the State Literacy Director for K-12 at Mississippi Department of Education. She tells MPB's Desiree Frazier more rigorous standards that began in 2015 are working.
4: We are looking to ensure that our students are more prepared, uh, more ready for fourth grade instruction, and so we are putting things in place, um, especially supports for our teachers and administrators, and even setting our parent meetings to the fall instead of in the spring in order to ensure that all of our stakeholders are aware of the changes that are to come.
5: What was wrong with the way that you were doing it?
4: It's not that anything was wrong with the way that we were doing it. Um, It's just that when the legislation was passed in 2013, the minimum requirement of the minimum score for our students um, was just scoring above the minimal level, and we have five levels uh, with our state assessment system and its minimum basic pass proficient or advanced so this meant that our students could pass with just a basic level of knowledge of our um, third grade standards and be promoted to fourth grade. but with the basic level, students will still need additional supports and more supports um, than than other students when they get to fourth grade because they just have a basic level instead of um, an average level of where they're supposed to be as far as mastery of third grade skills.
5: What does this mean for you, then, Mississippi?
4: Well, it means that we are raising the bar. Uh, I, I believe that we've had a lot of coverage on the successes that we've had with our NAEP scores, and that's the National Assessment for Educational Progress. And it compares our Mississippi students to students around the nation, um, there are students that are selected by uh, with a process where they're chosen to take the same assessment as other students in other states and over the past few administrations especially since 2013 our students in mississippi and ela or that's english language arts for fourth grade reading we have outscored and outpaced the nation as far as average skill score gains so we've had about a six point gain in in four years on the national assessment. So it shows that what we're doing with our rigorous standards, with our college and career readiness standards in Mississippi, and also what we've done with ensuring that our students are getting the the good foundation that they need with our pre-K collaboratives and also our Literacy-Based Promotion Act for kindergarten through third grade, that our students are stepping up to meet the challenge, and also our teachers are becoming better prepared to teach reading with the different types of resources and professional development offerings we're providing from the state.
5: For students who are not able to measure up to that level four proficiency How many times can they be held back?
4: For those students who are not able to pass the assessment at level 3 or above, they have two additional retest opportunities. Um, One will occur during the school year before they're out at the end of the year, and then there's another retest opportunity that's offered during the summer.
5: Has anything been done to help first and second grade teachers as they begin to prepare these students for this third grade uh, challenge?
4: What we do as the MDE and how we provide support is we have about 80 literacy coaches who will be supporting for this upcoming year 182 schools. Our literacy coaches are based in the lowest performing schools in the state based on an average of two years of third grade data, and they are in those schools for the entire school year. And they um, provide on-site professional development that's geared towards the teacher's needs. They also co-teach and model with teachers um, the, the lessons in literacy instruction and even in writing instruction. And so we've provided some on-site supports for the entire year in addition to the um, professional development trainings and offerings that we provide from the state.
5: So, have parents been notified about this change?
4: Yes, parents have notif- been notified about the change. Um, we this technical amendment was was actually passed in 2016. So, each year since then, we've held parent nights. We've sent out communication through our you know to our districts, and the, and the districts were to put this amendment in their parent handbook to let parents know that this is the year, that 2018-2019 is the year when this bar would be raised.
5: So ultimately, does this make the case for um, having early childhood education and more pre-K programs?
4: Yes, it makes the case. Uh, we've seen some really great results from our pre-K early learning collaboratives. And you know that our state legislature funds that project as well in select Schools that have decided to partner with early childhood, you know, programs or Head Starts, to prepare students for kindergarten. And so we have compared and we've looked at the data of those students who are in our early learning collaboratives, um, compared to those students who are in our uh, public pre-K and our students that are, um, and even students who are in Head Start. And it shows the growth that our students are being able to make, and especially when they get to kindergarten, um, the teachers aren't having to start from so far behind with these students because they're, they're more prepared and more ready for instruction.
5: Well, Dr. Burke, uh, State Literacy Director for the Mississippi Department of Education, thank you.
4: Thank you so much.
0: Coming up after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, a credit union in Mississippi offering hope to those who may be left out when it comes to traditional banking. This
6: is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. Coffee. Good, bad, ugly. What's the lowdown on coffee? So is it good or bad? And this is a long-term study. So this looked at 14,000 Americans. That's a pretty big study. This was looking at 26 years. So what happens, particularly when you drink larger amounts of coffee? So for those 14,000 people, those who drank at least three cups or more a day of coffee, they were 21% less likely to be hospitalized for liver-related illnesses. Now, we don't know why, and again, this is not a cause and effect. Don't go out there and start drinking the whole pot. There may be some good reasons why you don't need to do that if you've got high blood pressure or if you've got an arrhythmia in your heart or abnormal heart rate. If you are drinking coffee, then maybe you're less likely to be hospitalized or have liver problems. (music) For more health tips and medical information, listen to Southern Remedy each weekday morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. The health method is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Live healthy on the go with the My Blue mobile app available on the Apple App Store or Google Play. More information at bcbsms.com. It's good to be blue.
0: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Ezra Wall. A Mississippi CEO says the traditional banking industry needs to think outside the box to find new customers. Bill Bynum is CEO at Hope Credit Union, a Mississippi-based financial institution that serves populations left out by the traditional banking industry. He tells MPB's Desiree Fraser, Hope provides more than $100 million in financing over the last year in a five-state region.
7: There's more than 30 million people who don't have a banking account. In the United States or who rely heavily on petty lenders and check cashers, um, who charge predatory rates. We've been able to finance first time homeowners at a incredible rate. more than 85% of our mortgages were the first time home buyers. Almost 60% of the people who are members of Hope Credit Union didn't have a bank account before they joined the credit union. Or again, they were served by petty lenders and check cashers, uh, are commercial loans, uh, helping people start businesses and employ residents, Just personally, go to women and people of color, which um, is a growing segment of the population across the country, particularly here in the Deep South.
5: In the South, there's a a pocket, of course, that we hear reports of constantly about poverty. How does HOPE address that? What do you do to impact that?
7: We're really excited that we uh, have Grown from seven to 31 branches since the financial crisis. Many of these are in places where banks have closed branches, uh, and we've been able to not just uh, reopen those branches and, and extend services, but we are working with local leaders, with public officials, with community leaders. Um, we identify they identify priorities such as jobs, uh, education facilities, housing. And so we work with them to both invest our own resources, but also to leverage our resources from other banks, from federal and public government programs that these local leaders don't have as ready access to. So we're embedded in these communities where our staff, our residents, their neighbors are the people who need our services. And so I think the significant difference we make is that we're grounded in these communities and we are listening to residents and helping them. Uh, address their priority.
5: What is the biggest challenge in trying to combat uh, poverty and, and build financial literacy?
7: People can do what anyone else can do when they have the tools. Unfortunately, we are in a region where so many people and places have not been invested in as, as substantially as they should. You've got um, some counties that are disproportionately have been above. 20% poverty for at least three decades in a row. And so they've got a steeper hill to climb. And when you're not invested in education and infrastructure, um, you just got significant barriers to attracting capital and to equipping people to support their families. Uh, but uh, at, at every, whether it's housing, whether it's education, whether it's jobs, at some point, people need to have access to the financial tools to address those. And, and that's what we try to bring at
5: Hope. Okay. The Wall Street Journal recognized uh, Hope Enterprise. You won an award for them. from them. Can you speak a little bit about that?
7: We know that the Delta continues to be one of the most persistently impoverished places in the United States. Um, unfortunately, uh, when you look at the region we serve, particularly Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana, it's home to one-third of the counties in the United States is to have more than 20% poverty for three decades in a row. Uh, addressing those conditions is not going to happen overnight. We've got to do it one job at a time, one family at a time, one business at a time. Um, fortunately, we had a great year in 2017 demonstrating what's possible when you make strategic investments in people and places here in the Deep South. Uh, we're regularly trying to leverage our work Um, working with policymakers, working with businesses, working with others who also have a vested interest in making sure that uh, we equip everyone, not just people in in inner cities, but people in the Delta, people of color, women uh, who are on the outside of the economy looking in. We need to equip them to be productive citizens, and uh, we can do that more effectively when we work together, and that's that's the key to what we do at Hope. We take the data from our work and we take it to policymakers and other and practitioners and other partners. And together, we're making a significant difference.
5: Well, Bill Bynum with the Hope Credit Union, thank you so much for speaking
0: with us.
7: Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for making Mississippi Edition part of your morning. Check out our podcast on your favorite podcasting app. If you do so, hit subscribe and leave us a comment. That would help us out a lot. And remember to tune in tomorrow morning at 8:30 for the next Mississippi Edition, only right here on MPB Think Radio.
4: MPB's Communication and Education Department is looking for an education special project manager. The position will create lesson plans related to MPB programming. More information about this career opportunity at mpbonline.org.